0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Bible Breakdown. Today's a big day on the Bible Breakdown. It's Covenant Day. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We have been talking about the life of David, his obedience to God, which has been in contrast to that of Saul and his disobedience. We're kind of skipping over a discussion of David's time spent waiting to be king. Remember, he had been anointed, uh, but it was not actually king because Saul still was. David's waiting to be king is a very integral part of his story. Maybe if there's time at some point, I could get an extra episode to address that because it's very theologically and practically significant. But today, like I said, it's Covenant Day. It's not some obscure Christian holiday you don't know about. Today is going to be about the covenant that God makes with David, aptly called the Davidic covenant. Okay, remember, three most important humans in the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, David. I would say that you cannot fully understand the Bible without understanding these three important humans and the covenants associated with each of them. Abrahamic, Mosaic, and now we're going to learn about Davidic, okay, super important. It's got a lot of far-reaching implications that uh, affect really the way we read the rest of the Bible from this point on, and it is something that not only affects how we read the Bible, it affects how we look forward to eternity as well. There is just so much linked in this. So we're going to talk through uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, going through verse 17 today we'll talk a little bit about how this arises what the promises are what they mean all that kind of stuff we're gonna dive deeply into it break it down so starting in verse one of chapter seven it says this now when the king lived in his house and the lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies the king said to nathan the prophet see now i dwell in a house of cedar but the ark of god dwells in a tent And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now here, the king, even though it's not named, is David. Uh, Again, decades of struggle for David after he was anointed king long ago by Samuel when he was the last son brought before him. And the Lord told Samuel to fill his horn with oil and go, and he anointed David, however, Um, he struggled a lot because Saul was still King and Saul was very jealous of him. David spent a long, long time, many, many years on the run from Saul, but Saul at this point has died. Um, David finally apparently has some peace in his life. So there's other enemies like the Philistines around that he's got this period of peace and he kind of had a revelation one day when he's in his really nice house. He said, I live in this awesome house, but the ark is still in a tent. That's how he describes the tabernacle just a tent. A little bit of an understatement, perhaps, but still. He's like, what gives? Why am I living in this nice house when, quote unquote, God's house is a tent? So the implication is here that he wants to build God a house, a temple. Okay. So that's kind of the implication here. And Nathan, prophet extraordinaire, prophet to the stars, he's going to come up in David's life again next week. He said that he's kind of like, that sounds pretty good. Go for it. Uh, God's with you. However, God's going to have a quick chat with Nathan. Uh, Nathan didn't maybe do the, you know, it's kind of like, he's like, I bet it's okay. And then forgot to ask. So God has to have a quick chat with Nathan moving into verse four. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, that says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Have I not? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, "Why have you not built me a house of cedar?" So uh, God gives Nathan this message to send to David. Uh, I really appreciate the thought, but I don't really need a house. Okay, I haven't asked anybody for a house. I'm I'm good. And when I first read this, I almost felt like it was kind of like God was chastising. David, but I think it's really it's more of a statement for David and for us to understand God's lack of need for anything that we humans a think he think he needs or b could actually provide for him. Okay, God does not uh, need anything, and if he did have a need, it would not be something that we could provide. So. I think that's more what the heart of this statement is, because we're going to see God's responding fairly positively to David here, even though he's telling him, uh, I don't need a temple right this instant. Um, But so I don't think it's a chastisement. I think it's more of a, hey, David, like, appreciate the thought, but I don't really need anything. Um, And so this is what God tells David instead, moving down into verse eight. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Okay. Very interesting. God hears David's request to build a house. God actually flips the script. He says, hey, David, actually, I'm going to provide something for you instead. So God reminds David of what he's already done in his life uh, and the promises that he and he also he promises that he's going to make David's name great. Okay, kind of it's very reminiscent, actually, of another covenant, the Abrahamic, where God promises kind of the same thing to Abraham, that his name would be great. So that's what God takes this request from David and he actually turns it into like, actually, here's how I'm going to bless you. And then he also promises a place and rest from affliction for the people of Israel and for David specifically. Okay, this promise is getting pretty awesome. We also see David's request kind of turned on its head. God tells David that he is going to provide David a house. Okay, so David said, God, I want to build you a house. And God says, no, thank you. But you know what? I'm going to provide you a house. Here's what he says in verse, starting in verse 12. and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Okay, David wanted to build God a literal house. God is promising David a family dynasty, okay, a figurative house. So he says, I'm going to establish your house. I'm going to make you a house. And what he's telling him is basically, I'm going to establish your family as a dynasty. Okay. And this passage specifically, 12 through 16, this is really the meat of what makes up the Davidic covenant. Okay. This, what we just read is in effect, the Davidic covenant. Now, some things to bear in mind as we, because we're going to break this down verse by verse here. That was the whole thing we're going to get a little more specific into what each verse is communicating bear in mind that there is a complex mixture in this passage of near future far future and eternal future in this covenant that's what makes it really rich okay but it also makes it challenging so going in with this idea that there's going to be some near future some far future and some eternal future that comes out in this covenant. Okay? So, we can understand, and also so we can understand this better as we walk through each part, this covenant refers to David and his family to an extent, but this covenant, and here's what makes it so special, is ultimately going to be fulfilled in Jesus, who, as we know, traced his human genealogy back to David, Okay. remember, beginning of Matthew, beginning of Luke, they've got the genealogies. Really, a lot of that has to do, especially for Matthew um, in his writing, is going to show that David is related to, to Jesus or Jesus is related to David. That's really kind of what the whole point of Matthew's is and Luke's is similar. So I want us to go ahead and instead of like building it up and making it like really, oh, what's this about? I think it'll help us fully, more fully understand this covenant, these passages, these verses, if we go ahead and just get out in front, that this does refer to David and his family, but ultimately it's being fulfilled. It's referring to Jesus, okay, who traces his genealogy through David, through Joseph, his earthly quote-unquote father. Okay, so this covenant, also something else to know before we jump in. This is the starting point and basis for prophecies about and expectation of the Messiah. Okay, so when we talk about messianic expectation, uh, especially as we get into the New Testament, and as Jesus is identified as this Messiah figure and people have certain expectations of him based on that, and then not even just then but starting even back during the the major and minor prophets and their prophecies about the messiah it's based in this covenant okay this is where the messianic expectation comes from and we'll talk about why that is the case as we go through it but if you're wondering like okay they're referring to messiah i know this refers to this king of israel or whatever this is where this is what it's rooted in this is what people's hopes for the messiah that there would be somebody coming back to be on the throne of Israel, the hope for that happening is based in this covenant. Okay, so another thing about this covenant, Ooh, man, a lot of precursors. Hopefully, you can remember all these precursors, like the Abrahamic covenant. This is also an instance of the biblical principle, sometimes referred to as "already but not yet." Okay, already, not yet a clear paradox, a purposeful paradox. This idea that there are things that are already going to be true, already are true about this promise, this covenant. But then there are things that are also not yet fully fulfilled or not yet fulfilled at all. Okay, so for example, in the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham is promised offspring. He has a son in Isaac. Yay! Is that it? No, that's not it. Okay, that's not the end of the covenant. That's the already. Okay. So Abraham was promised offspring. He has Ishmael. Yeah. But that one, he didn't count, unfortunately, for Ishmael. Isaac, though, counts as, you know, his offspring. And it was a miracle because Abraham and Sarah were too old to have kids. So it was a, a miracle he had the offspring, right? But the future more significant fulfillment of that promise is Jesus as an ancestor of Abraham. Okay. So that's that already. So in Abraham's time, it was already, but also not yet because Jesus hadn't fully fulfilled what it would mean for Abraham's offspring to be a blessing to the the whole world, those kind of things. Another example, very relevant to us. If we have faith in Jesus, we are redeemed from our sin and separation from God. Currently, right now, right this instant, through Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection. So through faith in Jesus, we currently, right now, have been forgiven and redeemed from our sin and brought back into relationship with God. That's the already. However, we also look forward to our complete redemption when all creation is redeemed, when sin and sadness and death, etc., are no more. Okay, that's the not yet. So we live in a current redemption, but we also look forward to a future redemption. So that's the concept of this already not yet that we're also gonna see here in the Davidic covenant. All right, with all of those I think that's like four different huge theological um, ideas that I just gave you. So, with all those in mind and remembering them perfectly, let's take a look at some of the specifics of this covenant. So, back in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Okay, so David is being promised that after he dies, a biological descendant of his will be established. Okay, that's the who shall come from your body. So we know, because we've read ahead, that this refers to Solomon, his son, who is going to be king after him. So not only is he going to have a son, but he has a son specifically that is going to take over the kingdom of Israel. So he's being promised that. However, we now as New Testament believers also recognize... So Solomon was the already when he was born. We, we recognize that Jesus is an offspring of David whose kingdom will be established as well, okay? So this promise to establish Solomon's kingdom is good, but even better is that a, a greater offspring of David is going to come and his kingdom will be established. We know that that's in Jesus, okay? So that's kind of also when I was talking about near future, far future, eternal future. That'd be like a near future, far future, from the time of David. Eternal future is the things like when we're fully redeemed. That's a that's an eternal future idea that we see in the New Testament. This this one in verse 12 is kind of a near future, far future. Near future being Solomon, far future being Jesus. Okay. So there you go. That's verse 12. That's one part of it. It's this promise that there will be offspring from David's family. And that God will continue to establish his kingdom. That it will continue in the way that David has his kingdom. All right, moving to verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, so David wanted to build this temple for God. God said, no, thank you. However, he is telling David, uh, your offspring's going to build, build me a house, build me a temple, which we know. Again, Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, there's also a promise that the throne will be established forever. Okay, this specifically leads to the prophecies about Messiah during the exilic period and the messianic hope during that time as well and into the into the time of Jesus. Okay, that's specifically this idea that David's throne, that throne over Israel as it was at that time, that it would be established forever, that meant When the throne wasn't established, like after Babylon, Babylon takes over Jerusalem, 586 BC, there's no king in Israel or in Judah. Okay, that's when people said, okay, but God promised that he was going to establish the throne forever. So there's an expectation. When is a descendant of David going to return to the throne? Okay, which of course, that is a long time to wait. You can imagine by the time that Jesus is there, because even when they get back from exile, it's not like everything is just uh, peachy like it was before they left. Not that it was great before they left, but it's still they, they're going to be under the thumb of, of foreign powers for the a, a few hundred years before Jesus gets there. OK, so this idea they're waiting with this eager expectation because of this promise that the throne would be established forever. So when the throne is not established, they are looking forward to the time when God will reestablish it. Okay. Now, so he's going to build a house, right? He's going to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Enter Jesus into this conversation. And I'm going to put, I'm going to, this first one, I'm going to put, uh, I put a little asterisk in my notes because um, anytime we're trying to kind of interpret whether something is only uh, near future, only far future, only eternal future, or some of, or some of each or any combination of those three. I think we need to be careful to draw like really hard lines and say, this is definitely what it's saying. Uh, but I do just want to mention this because I, I see a theological truth in it. Um, and then I think there's some good biblical support as well. But I, again, I'm not firmly, I'm not going to say this, like this is a hundred percent truth and I'm hundred percent certain that this is what is meant by the statement. But here's my thought. Jesus, builds a house for the name of God, which we, of course, know as the church. And the church is often referred to um, as a building, Jesus being our cornerstone. Okay, so Solomon's going to build a temple, but Jesus also builds a house for the name of God in the church. And so that's not only far future, but then also eternal future when the church gets to be with God forever. Again, that one's got an asterisk, okay? Might be reading a little bit too much into that, even though the the fact of it is true, The whether or not this verse refers to that fact that is true, not 100%, if that makes sense. However, the part that is very certain, Jesus does establish, or Jesus is the way that God establishes the throne of his kingdom forever, right? How can you have a kingdom that is established forever? You must have an eternal kingdom, and it must be ruled by God. That is the only way there is no kingdom of people with people at its head that could truly make it forever. Right? So Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of a throne that's established forever. And the way that that throne is established is through his completed work on the cross, his resurrection, his gathering of his people to himself, our ultimate redemption. We are his people. He is our God. The throne will be established forever through Jesus' work, so He will rule forever um, over us as a earthly by His earthly lineage, uh, a descendant of David. Makes sense. Okay, there we go. That's why, too, when Jesus said that He's Messiah, that people had so many expectations of Him, because if He's the Messiah, He's here to establish the throne forever, and people had a lot of different ideas about what that meant and how that would come about. And pretty much none of them knew how it was going to come about. It turns out, but that's why they had so many expectations for a person who would make that claim because of this grand promise that it was rooted in. Okay. Verse 14, making it along. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. Okay. So King of Israel Um, was often described to as a son of God. That was fairly common. Solomon did sin. Um, His sin specifically was um, he collected for himself many wives and concubines. He was led astray to idol worship by um, the way that he kind of immersed himself with uh, foreign wives and gathering many wives to himself. And he was punished by God. And we see a, a lot of that in the book of Ecclesiastes and his kind of recognition of how he was spending his time. Now, Jesus, of course, so that's the already. Solomon's the already. He was a son of God as the king. He did sin. Jesus, however, the more complete fulfillment, the far future, is the son of God. And though he didn't commit any sin, he was beaten by people on behalf of the sin that he took on his shoulders. when He Died on the cross, the sin that he took the penalty for, he did take the beatings along with that. So that's another one I put an asterisk by. Does that part about committing iniquity and being disciplined, rod of men, stripes of sons of men, does that only refer to Solomon? Very possibly so. Could it be that the part about committing iniquity and being disciplined refers Solomon, but then also there's the connection with both of them um, receiving? Um, I guess injury as a part of that, Solomon's being maybe a little bit more figurative, Jesus being more literal, maybe. Again, it's a fact that Jesus took his sin, took our sin on his shoulders, did not sin, and then was also beaten. That's a fact. Whether or not this refers to that is the part that has the asterisk. Okay, In verse 14. That was it. Verse 15. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Okay, so this steadfast love, the word hesed in Hebrew, very uh, theologically rich word for this steadfast love, that it will not depart. This covenant that God is making is both eternal and unconditional. He will not take it away. It's unconditional because it's given graciously. Okay, this is like the Abrahamic covenant. It was given Graciously, it was unconditional and it was eternal, is eternal. Okay. The Mosaic covenant, however, was not t- eternal, nor was it unconditional. The Mosaic covenant we know has been fulfilled through Jesus and we now live under the new covenant, which is better according to scripture. Scripture says that. That's not my opinion. That's what scripture says. It was conditional in that in Deuteronomy, the conditions are blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Okay. Okay. But the Davidic covenant is more like the Abrahamic covenant in this way, that it is not going to be taken away. The steadfast love will not depart. It's, it's sticking around. The Establishing the throne of his kingdom forever. It's eternal. It's unconditional, provided by God graciously. So that's what we see there. The steadfast love will not depart. And then moving into verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Again, eternal. Your throne shall be established forever. Eternal. A way to summarize often uh, the Davidic covenant is three words. House, kingdom, throne. So house being descendants, kingdom, people to rule, throne, a throne to rule on, the authority to rule. Solomon had that, right? Solomon had, um, he had, a house. He was part of the dynasty, and he continued it on. Um, he had people to rule, and he had the authority to rule them. And Jesus established this with his completed work on the cross, his resurrection, and we look forward to an eternity when we are in eternity under his rule. He has a house. He has his people. He had, or I'm sorry, he is. I guess, we're kind of his co-heirs, which is kind of cool, I guess, about the house part, but he has the People to rule the kingdom that we belong to him. He has the throne. He has the authority to rule. Again, that that's that eternal future. Solomon had it in that near future. Jesus begins his kingdom in the far future through his completed work. But then we also look forward to the eternal future in which we are in eternity under his rule. So that is, in effect, the Davidic covenant. Remembering that it established this dynasty for David. It established this basis for the messianic hope. That's why I say if we want to fully understand the rest of the Bible, we need to be able to understand this covenant. Because whenever there wasn't somebody on the throne and they knew that God had promised that the throne would be established forever. Because the people believed God, because they trusted him, because they believed what was written in the the book of 2 Samuel as we now know it. They waited then, what, what is it going to look like when this throne is indeed established? So that's why we have to understand it, for to understand how people view Jesus and to understand Jesus' ministry, who he became to the people that they did not expect to be this sacrificial figure rather than this um, kick Roman booty figure like they were all expecting and establish a literal governmental Reign—that's what a lot of them expected. So when he told them that he would have to suffer and die, they were like, "No, no, that's not what it says." But they were wrong, obviously. In comparison to Jesus, well, that's why we have to understand it. So as we seek to apply this, really, what I hope that we can apply from this is, I hope the knowledge of the Davidic covenant helps you understand the Bible better. That's how I hope it is applied. So that as even as we get into the major and minor prophets, and there are these prophecies about Messiah that we run it through this grid of what we know about the Davidic covenant. And as we see Jesus' ministry and the things he does, the things people expect him to, that he kind of turns on its head, I hope that we can also see that and understand his work more fully. And then, too, another thing, just even with this principle of the uh, already not yet and this covenant being one way that we experience that, though there are many, uh, As great a life as we have with God now, a a life that um, in this world would be um, just utterly difficult and utterly challenging and hopeless and all these kind of things that a a life without God leads, living life having believed in Jesus now is great. Even though there's still struggles, we recognize this hope that we have in God, this forgiveness, this redemption, um, things like community. Uh, intimacy with others that we experience, um, the the work of the Holy Spirit in us, um, all these things that are reflections of who God is and who he's created us to be. As great as those things are, we have more to look forward to. We have the already of life with Jesus, but there's also a not yet, an eternal future that we look forward to where we don't have to wonder. We don't have to hope. We don't have to have faith because it's right there. All the things that we had hoped for, all the things we had faith in, the God that we've had this faith in, he's going to be right there. We have so much more to look forward to. And I hope that studying this covenant is a reminder that that is the future that awaits us. And it's a future that is worth yearning for, pining for, because it's a future that we get to be with God forever. No more death, no more sadness, no more hoping, no more faith. We just get to be with God forever. We get to worship him forever forever. Love him forever. Be loved by him forever. Be with one another forever in the community of God under the eternal reign of our King Jesus.